Thank you, Joanne. In the midst of all the brokenness of the world, we have the Word of God, to which we are going to be turning in just a minute. Welcome again, Scott Grant, pastor, elder, been around a long time. It's great to be around with you today. So the, uh, the glory days of uh, sculpture in Florence were thought to have faded with the death of the great Donatello in 1466. Here is Donatello's most famous work. This is the David. This is his vision, his version of David, the great king of Israel, after he had conquered Goliath. So um, one art critic looked at that and, and called it dreamy. It's a dreamy vision of David. Well, uh, um, Donatello had this pupil by the name of Bertoldo Giovanni. And he did not scale the heights of his mentor. In fact, uh, he was not considered a major artist at all. And uh, one observer, contemporary of his, said, Bertaldo is not a sculptor of miniatures. That's the thing he specialized in, was sculpting miniatures. He is not a sculptor of miniatures. He is a miniature sculptor. Ooh, man. That's before the social network and all that kind of stuff. Man. So, and Bertoldo himself came to this conclusion. Isn't it a bit pathetic that from your pillow, you can take in with one glance my whole lifetime of work? By any measurement, it is a modest contribution. Well, what do we do with that? I think uh, most of us probably feel that we're not as good as we'd like to be. Some of us aspire to greatness, but greatness eludes us. And it feels as if the best that we can do is make a modest contribution. Again, what do we do with that? I think our text today has something to say about that, Exodus chapter 18. Last week, we looked at Exodus 17, and the structure here is very similar. In fact, it's virtually identical. We have two stories in Exodus 18, just as we had two stories in Exodus 17. And the second story builds off the first story in both chapters. And what we see in both chapters is, is that Moses, the leader of Israel, is growing. He's learning. And perhaps we too can grow and learn as we look at Exodus 18 today. So let's look at uh, the beginning of the chapter, shall we? Exodus 18, beginning at verse 1. I'm going to skip a few verses to get through all of this, but we'll get the whole idea of what's really going on here. Exodus 18, beginning at verse 1. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Moving down to verse 5. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. 
So a little background on this. Moses has been, uh, grew up in Egypt. He went to the wilderness after he made a mess of things in Egypt. He went to the wilderness. He ended up meeting Jethro. They're called rule in Exodus chapter two. He uh, meets his wife who is the daughter of Jethro. And now since then, at some point, he sent his family back. He departed from them. We don't know why. The narrator doesn't tell us that. But now there's this great reunion then between Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, and Moses. And I love the way this is depicted here. Obviously, there's more going on here than the narrator lets us in on. It's a story. It's a narrative. And so he picks out certain things. But he depicts it in such a way that it is simple and it is beautiful. Each person speaks and listens to one another. So first of all, they ask of each other's welfare. Everyone gets to say something about this, what's going on in your life. They ask of each other's welfare. And then Moses says what he has experienced, and Jethro listens to that. Moses talks about everything they've experienced, how the Lord has delivered them from Egypt, from bondage in Egypt, how it's been difficult on the way, how the Lord has provided for them. And he talks about all the hardship. And now then Jethro is able to listen to what Moses has experienced and then speak. And he's able to notice all of the great things that God has done for Moses and for Israel. Now Moses is very honest with what he's experienced. He talks about all the hardship. And uh, Jethro does not negate that, but is able to see into that and speak into that and talks about all the goodness, all the good that God has done. So all the hardship then becomes the way Jethro is able to see it and, talk, and speak to Moses becomes all the good. So again, Moses is able to be open with what's going on. Jethro is able to hear and then to speak. They are both looking for God in the story. Where is the God of Israel in all of this? Uh, Moses articulates that and then Jethro is able to see that and able to affirm for Moses what's going on. So how then does uh, Jethro, who is called a priest of Midian, respond to all this? He responds in worship. Verse 10, Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people and Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Now, this is a priest of Midian, a pagan priest. This is not a priest of Israel. This is a pagan priest. And now he is worshiping the God of Israel. He's saying, this God is greater than all gods. Now, we don't know for sure whether he's given up his gods or not or just added the God of Israel to the mix. Nevertheless, he does say, this is the greatest God. This, is, this, is, this God is greater than all. I see this. I understand this. And that he worships. He brings a burnt offering, which, which represents sort of total devotion. So I'd like to think at this point that he has become a total convert to the God of Israel. We don't know that for sure. Here's something that is suggestive, I think, by the narrator, narrator in a very artistic way. Uh, originally, he is introduced as a priest of Midian, but then the narrator leaves that description behind and the next 12 times he refers to Jethro, he refers to him as Moses' father-in-law. So this family connection 
that has overwhelmed this pagan connection. So he becomes a worshiper of the Lord in some sense anyway. So this is called the mountain of God. God has appeared at this mountain, has appeared to Moses at this mountain, and will do so again. But I think it's also suggestive of what's happening here between Jethro and Moses. The Lord is palpably present as these two men share about God with one another. The same thing, I believe, happens when we share with God about one another. Or we share with one another about God. And God is in the midst of all that. God is then palpably present. Any place where two people come together to share their lives with one another and to look for God in their stories, that place becomes the mountain of God. This place this morning becomes the mountain of God as we are speaking of him, as we are speaking of his greatness, as we are sharing with one another. So this is something that we can do for one another. It's very simple. Ask people questions. Listen when they speak. Look for God in the story. Uh, Hans Strupp was a world-renowned psychotherapist. He was groundbreaking in his work, wrote books, and after 50 years in the business, he said this. The simple, incontrovertible truth, it seems to me, is that if you are experiencing difficulties, chances are you will feel better if you talk to someone you trust. Now, this is not to diminish the value of therapy. It is, however, to lift up the value of speaking with one another, of speaking and sharing with someone you trust. Do that, find someone you trust, as Moses did, open your heart to that person, and whatever happens from that point forward, you will feel better about what's going on in your life. So, can we do this for one another? Can we ask questions of one another? Can we open our hearts to one another? Can we hear that? Can we speak God into that story? Can we see and look for God in each other's stories? I think that we can. Now, the theme in these verses is what the Lord has done for Moses and Israel. Notice the progression here. First of all, Jethro hears about what God has done for Moses and Israel, and then he comes and Moses speaks of all that God has done for Israel, and then Jethro rejoices in all that God has done for Israel. So we have in the first story, we have Jethro observing all that God has done, and Jethro pronounces it good. Now, in the second story in the chapter, he's going to observe all, of, all that Moses is doing, and he's going to have a different response. Let's look at verse 13. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. And the people with you will certainly, you and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. 
Jethro asks a question. He's not judging. He's asking a question. Why are you doing this? He's observing what Moses is doing, and he asks Moses a question. Why are you doing this? Why are you judging all the people? Why are the people waiting in this big, long line to talk to you, and why are you the only one who's doing it? And what's Moses' answer? Moses answers the question essentially this way. Well, they expect me to do this. I, I'm, I'm the expert. I'm the one who's met with the Lord. I'm reading a little bit between the lines here, but this is the gist of the whole thing. Uh, I'm the expert. They expect me to do this. And so that's why I'm doing it this way. Well, what does Jethro think about all of this? Remember, he noticed all that God was doing and that was good. He notices all that, uh, that Moses is doing and it's not good. He says things basically need to change. This is not working out really well. The problem here, here Moses, is you're going to wear yourself out and you're going to wear everyone else out also. He says, this thing is too heavy for you. Now, that takes us right back to Exodus chapter 17 and Moses' experience there. In Exodus 17, Moses went to the top of the hill while the battle was going on down below and he raised his hands and when he had the staff in his hand, the staff of God in his hand, and he raised that, the battle down below was going really well. When his hands got weary, then he lowered his hands and the battle wasn't going so well. Moses' hands back then were getting heavy. What did he learn? He couldn't hold up his hands by himself. So he needed Aaron and her to prop up his hands. It was too heavy for him back then. He needed other people. Same situation here. Jethro observes, it's too, this thing is too heavy for you. Maybe you need some help in this too. So we, we get the impression then that Moses, based on his experience, has been prepared by God to hear Jethro's advice. So do you ever do, find yourself doing a lot of things, maybe too many things, simply because people expect you to do them? Do you ever find yourself doing a lot of things, maybe too many things, because, well, in the end, you're the one who's best qualified to do them, and no one else can do those things as well as you do. Have you ever worn yourself out by doing, by doing too many things because too many people expect you to do too many things, and because you're the expert, and because no one can do all of those things as well as you do? Have you ever worn yourself out doing too many things? Perfectionists especially fall into this trap, into this way of life. And I speak from experience as a recovering perfectionist. There is still, I have to admit, something within me that wants every sermon to be perfect. I have never preached a perfect sermon. I've already blown it in this one. <laughs> it's not perfect. I think God can use it anyway. There's an old expression that goes like this, perfectionists take great pains and give them to others. I used to do a lot more of that. I was, I was not a super pleasant person to be around when I was leading something, going all the way back to my days as an editor in the newspaper business. Maybe, based on your experience, 
you have been prepared to listen to the advice of Jethro. What you are doing is not good. You cannot do it alone. I will often hear people say every once in a while, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not perfect. And I'm only human, I'm not perfect. And my initial response, I have to say, I don't say this, but I think this is, did you think you could be? <laughs> did you actually think you could be perfect? Of course you can't be perfect. I'm not perfect. There are some Moroccans, Moroccan rug makers, who deliberately make mistakes in their designs they weave these imperfections into the rugs. Why? Because they believe that it is audacious, perhaps even blasphemous, to make something perfect when only God is perfect. The story here in Exodus 18 tells us that God is great. God is so great. God is so awesome. God is even perfect. Therefore, we don't have to be. We don't have to be so awesome. We don't have to be so great. We don't have to be perfect. So we pick up some more advice from Jethro in verse 19. Now, obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, you will be able to endure, and all the people also will go to their place in peace. So Jethro has a basic two-step approach to this. First of all, teach everyone. If you teach everyone, Moses, there will be less disputes. Why? Because if you teach everyone, more people will be less contentious, and more people then, if they are well taught, will be able to resolve their own disputes. And the second step is this, appoint judges. Appoint judges who can, who can resolve these disputes, all of these small little matters that you're dealing with, let them take care of all of this. If there are great matters, sure, let them come to you, but let them take care of all of these small matters. So appoint these men to be judges so they can share the burden with you. Well then, how then does Moses respond to this? I think, once again, Moses has been prepared by God, by his experience, to respond in a positive way. Look at verse 24. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. He did all that he said. Now, remember, Jethro had observed all that Moses was doing and it was not good, and now Jethro does all, now Moses does all that Jethro says, and we're left with the impression that it is good. So what do we do then with Jethro's advice here? 
We take it that it is good advice. The narrator would leave us with that impression. Moses receives the advice and implements the advice. I say that it applies to, to, to multiple spheres in our lives, from the family to the workplace and to the church. How so? Think of it this way. Do you have any expertise? All of you have some expertise in some area. You've been taught, you have a field, whatever, you have a major, you have a field of study, you have some expertise. What do you do with that expertise? Do not hoard it. Instead, pass it on. Pass on that expertise to others. That's what Moses did. Give other people opportunities. It may seem as if you're the most qualified to do whatever it is, and that may be true. Nevertheless, give other people opportunities. Let them learn. Allow them to fail and allow them to learn from their failures. Allow them to do things differently than you would do them. They're different people, different gifts, different orientations. Allow them to learn, to, to fail, and allow them to do things differently. So in my family, there is this great, great tradition it's a little bit mythical in terms of its origins, and it has to do with our annual Christmas Eve celebration. No one really knows how this whole thing got started. It's been going on for at least 70 years, 70, 80 years. It may go back centuries. Nobody really knows. But somehow, in my extended family, on my mother's side, this party on Christmas Eve has been passed down from generation to generation. Now, when I was a kid growing up, we hosted this party at our house, and my parents hosted this party, and it was this awesome thing. And my mother was awesome at hosting this party. And back then, you know, it had as many as 30 or 40 people sometimes, and now we're about down to about a couple dozen. We've had some more deaths than births, but we've got probably a couple dozen. And I was made to understand growing up that this was very important in our extended family. It's a diverse family, different opinions on issues, but this party was the one time in the year when we knew that we were all gonna be together. And everyone loved the party and everyone was gonna come together and do the party. So one way or another, this thing was gonna continue. Now, eventually it got passed on to my aunts and my uncles. My mother couldn't host it anymore. My mother died. And then the aunts and the uncles, some died and some grew old. And eventually, sort of, it comes down to, well, you know, I guess I got to step up now. And uh, so Karen and I, for the last few years, have hosted this party. So this is this great tradition that has been passed on to us. And I'm going to make sure that this thing continues. But I'm going to do it a little differently. There's no way I could do what my mother did. Just no way. But I'm able to do something, <laughs> I want to do something, that, they, that never happened at my house. It's that like before we're, we're going to have a meal, okay, I'm going to give a little speech. I'm, I'm going to do a little sermon. You know, I even kind of warned them. I said, you know, I'm a pastor. You know that. You're going to get a little sermon here, okay? And it's a two-part sermon. It goes like this. First of all, I, I preach to them the importance of this party and how, how much this party has meant to us through the years. I connect this party to history. And not only that, I say, we have to keep this thing going, and some of this aren't gonna be around forever, i.e. me. And I speak to the teenagers there, the five teenagers, that one day this party is gonna be yours, and you have to keep this thing going. So that's part one of the sermon. Part two, you get the gospel. My extended family doesn't believe in Jesus. I said, I'm a pastor, it's Christmas, you get Jesus, okay? So I give them Jesus, and then I pray for the meal. And it's a great party, and it was a great party this Christmas Eve. It's going to happen again next year one way or the other. Even during COVID, we found a way to do it over Zoom. 
Now, when I was an intern at Cole Community Church in Boise, Idaho, uh, the, I was working in the junior high ministry, and the junior high pastor at one point said, okay, I'm going to take four months off. I think I had a sabbatical or something like that. You're in charge. I'm in charge? There's 150 kids that are coming on a Sunday morning at this church. And I go, I'm in charge of this? He said, yeah, you're in charge. Yeah, he, gave me a point. he came alongside me, gave some pointers, says, you can do this. Well, I failed a few times. I succeeded a few times. I learned a few things. At another point in this, uh, at, when I was at this church, I signed up to go on a mission trip to Bulgaria, a short-term mission trip. I signed up for the trip. I meet with the pastor. He says, how'd you like to lead the trip? Well, I just signed up for the trip. You want me to lead the thing? Yeah, he says, go ahead and lead the thing. He says, you can, you can do this. So I, I, I ended up leading the trip. And there was one particular coworker who was not at all happy with my leadership. I had to learn how to deal with that. I felt like I didn't do it well. I failed. I succeeded. But I learned. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says that Paul commands the leaders, talks about the leaders in the church. And he wants them to equip the saints, that is the believers, for the work of the ministry. So we embrace that here at PBC, Ephesians chapter 4. That's part of our DNA for us as pastors and elders to equip the saints, that's you, for the work of the ministry. And one of the chief ways we do this is by preaching the word of God so that you can learn about God for yourself. You can look into the text. You can learn how to feed yourselves and you can grow and that relationship with God can be nurtured and you recognize that you have things to do. You have things to contribute. The work of the ministry, it's not just the pastors and the elders, it's all of us. And we embrace that at PBC. You heard a reference earlier in the service to the Leadership Institute. That's one of the expressions of Ephesians chapter four, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. One of my mentors was David Roper, a former pastor of this church, and he wrote a, uh, a book on ministry, on church ministry, pastoral ministry, that he simply called a burden shared. And that, by the way, is the title of this sermon, A Burden Shared. When I was a young pastor here at PBC just coming up, I came, upon, uh, came across this book by a fellow by the name of William Still. It's a small little book. It had been Xeroxed off, and it wasn't really a, kind of a full-fledged book, but I came across it, and I was very influenced by it. And William Still was a pastor in Scotland for 50 years at the same church, and he continued pastoring the church well into his 80s before he finally gave it up. And um, he was single his whole life. And so I was fairly encouraged by this because when I started out here at PBC as a pastor, I was single. So here's one of the things he says in that book, The Work of the Pastor, William Still. My pastoral work of personal dealing, considerable though it is, has been greatly reduced through the years because the building up of people's faith by the ministry of the word solves so much in their lives and enables those who receive it and seek to live by it to understand and solve so much in their lives that they become pastors themselves. Indeed, one of the features of such a radical and total ministry of the word is that it thrusts so many, so many into spiritual and social work that I can hardly keep a congregation together on account of their scattering throughout the land and throughout the earth. Also, when I was a pastor here, just a year or two into it, uh, I went over to see Brian Morgan, a pastor at PBC Cupertino. I'm trying to sort myself out, figure out myself, what am I supposed to be doing and all of that. 
And Steve Zeisler actually said, a longtime pastor, says, why don't you go see Brian? I think he knows, what he's, knows who he is. So I went over to see Brian. I spent a couple days with him. He says, why don't you come see my men's group? Just see it in action. So I attended his men's group, and uh, Brian uh, had a Bible study, but he wasn't going to be the one leading it this night. It was somebody else. Somebody else he had trained was going to lead the Bible study. But uh, one guy was talking about his problems, and uh, one other guy spoke into those problems and another guy spoke into those problems and they were praying for one another. And I'm thinking to myself, is this Bible study ever gonna happen? And it actually never happened. And they continued talking and it was all about, ended up being just about this one guy, this one night. And all the other guys were just happy for that. And, 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 uh, and all supporting, gathering around this one guy who was dealing with these particular problems. And I asked Brian about that later, and Brian was in the circle but hardly said a word. I said, what's up with this, Brian? How come you didn't say anything? And he said, well, some of those guys are actually better pastors than I am. We're sending off a team to India. We prayed for them last week. We've been doing this for 20 years. In 20 years, never has a pastor or elder led that team. Atul and Irene Ayer are leading that team this year and have done so for the last five or six years. We've always had a pastor or elder go on the trip, but this time we can't do that. They're going to be fine. <laughs> Next week, we're going to have some teenagers helping us lead our worship service. They might not do it as well as I do it. <laughs> I hope not, but they're going to learn. They're going to grow, and we're going to love it, and they're going to bless us. What did Jesus do? Jesus pretty much did what Jethro advised Moses to do. He taught everyone, but he appointed some, namely the disciples. What did he appoint the disciples to do? The same things that he was doing. He appointed them to preach and to heal and to cast out demons and to make disciples and to trust God to work through those disciples. Did they do it as well as Jesus did it? Of course not. Who does anything as well as Jesus? He had no problem with that. They go out, they're casting out demons, there's some successes, there's some failures too. They come back to Jesus, why couldn't we cast out this demon? Well, this, this kind only comes out by prayer and fasting. When they were super successful, they came back and they were rejoicing and Jesus had to correct their attitudes a little bit. He sent them out. He commissioned them. He did not wear himself out, nor did he wear others out either. The disciples, later to become apostles, learned from all of this. So when there's a problem in Acts chapter 6, there's a dispute over the widows and who's getting how much and all of this. The apostles said, called the full number of believers together at that point and said, okay, you choose seven men. We're not going to choose the seven men. You choose the seven men. Make sure they're men of character, just like Jethro advised Moses to make sure that these are men of character. Bring them to us, and that's what they did, and they laid hands on them. And that's how that particular issue was addressed. And what happens after that? Look at Acts chapter 6, verse 7. 
And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Philip Yancey says this, Jesus left few traces of himself on earth. He wrote no books or even pamphlets. A wanderer, he left, he left no home or even belongings that could be enshrined in a museum. He did not marry, settle down, and begin a dynasty. We would, in fact, know nothing about him except for the traces he left in human beings. That was his design. The law and the prophets had focused like a beam of light on the one who was to come, and now that light, as if hitting a prism, would fracture and shoot out in a human spectrum of waves and colors. A human spectrum of waves and colors. That, my friend, is us. Because God is so great and awesome and even perfect, we don't have to be. But here's something based on that that we can and should do. Involve others. Involve others. Involve others and trust that God's going to work through them. Many years ago uh, at our men's retreat, we had a speaker by the name of John Talbert. At that particular time, he was a pastor at Westgate Church. And he told us the story about how at one point in his life, actually pretty recently, he was just dealing with the Lord and he came to the conclusion, you know, I'm just average. He wanted to be better than he was, but he came to the conclusion, well, I'm just average. And when he said that, he felt the Lord saying to him something like, average, oh, I can use you. <laughs> I can use you. And at that point, John ended up starting Beautiful Day, which is a ministry that involved thousands and ended up blessing thousands. So Bertaldo Giovanni was not considered a major artist. But in his dying days, the de facto ruler of the Florentine Republic, Lorenzo de Medici, Medici, I think I said the name. I'm sorry, I'm, see, the sermon's not perfect, you know? Blow the names. Uh, he called in Bertaldo and he commissioned him to teach some of the aspiring sculptors in Florence. And he ended up teaching uh, these, these young men who went on to become some of the greatest artists of their day. Men such as Baccio Montulpo, Giovanni Francesco Rustici, and Giacomo Sanzovino, and I have no idea who those guys are. I just wanted to pronounce their names. But he also ended up training someone you might have heard of who did this. Michelangelo, the David. The glory days of sculpture in Florence had not faded with the death of Donatello. In fact, they had not yet peaked. Bertaldo's last words supposedly were to Michelangelo, his young pupil. He said this, Michelangelo, you are my heir as I was Donatello's. Michelangelo said, yes, Bertoldo, and I am proud.
Would you please stand? Uh, Lord, uh, not many of us are as great as we would like to be. Um, show us that that's fine. But Lord, inspire us, Lord, to, to give away what we have to others, to involve others in our lives, to equip and to, to love and to, to send them out into this world to do your work or wherever that might be. Lord, we have sung of your greatness this morning and we're about to sing of your greatness again. This all hinges on your greatness, on your awesomeness, on your power. So, Lord, as we sing this last song, may we really connect with that. Indeed, great are you, Lord. Amen. Song two. Your name is a 